The problem of evil is certainly the most serious argument against the existence of God. If God is all good, he wants only good. And if he's all powerful, he can get whatever he wants. Uh, and if he's all wise, he knows how to do it. And those are three non-negotiable attributes for God. So it seems that it logically entails that evil cannot possibly exist if God exists. But there's two kinds of evil. They're not physical evil and spiritual evil because both kinds are both physical and spiritual. They're active evil and passive or receptive evil. Active evil is the evil that we do. It's called sin. We can do it with our bodies. We can do it with our souls. Uh, the other kind of evil is called suffering. We can do it with our body. We can do it with our souls. Emotional suffering is a kind of evil. Now, fortunately, of those two kinds of evil, the most serious kind, which is sin, is easy to explain. We have free will. Uh, if God had not given us free will, or if God removed our free will a moment before he saw that we would misuse it to sin, there would be no sin. Of course, then we would be robots, or Democrats, maybe. Uh, so, uh, I'm glad that you gave me the hard task instead of the easy one. I've already solved in one sentence uh, the problem of evil uh, with regard to sin. But why do we suffer? And why is there so much of it? And why do so many good people suffer? Somehow, the term evil has to be a unified term. It has to have at least an analogical unity, if not a univocal unity. And therefore, the two different kinds of evil, which I have just distinguished, must be somehow connected. But that connection is very mysterious. The three friends of Job thought it was not mysterious. They thought if a man sins, he suffers. That's justice. Job suffers, therefore Job must have sinned. Uh, they were wrong, but it's not very clear why they were wrong. And even after you read the book of Job, uh, even though it's clear why they were wrong, it's not clear what the alternative is. Because when God shows up to Job, he doesn't explain the problem of evil. He doesn't explain why he allowed Job to suffer. He doesn't even let Job read chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Job. I imagine God saying to Job uh, at the beginning of chapter 1, Hey, Job, how do you like your life so far? And Job says, Oh, I love it. You gave me clear directives, and I obeyed them, and you rewarded me, and I'm happy, and I'm sitting in the city gates here dispensing justice, and all these Jewish mothers say to their children, Why can't you be like Job? And God says to Job, Yeah, I think it's a pretty good story, but I got a better one. A better one, says Job? Yeah. You want to read the script? I've already written it. Okay, thanks, God. God shows him the book of Job. Job starts reading it, and he's appalled. He says, you, you think that's a better story? And God says, well, get in it. You'll find out at the end. And he only finds out at the end. But at the end, he does find out. I mean, if you were to ask Job, which of the two stories would you rather be in before the story gets off the ground, he would say, you've got to be kidding, number one. If you were to ask Job in the middle of the story, as he is sitting on his dung heap, I hope some Catholic translator dares to call that four-letter word by its, its literal name. You know what dung is. Uh, Job, are you glad you are there where you are? Uh, are you glad you're in Job 2 rather than Job 1? Job would say, you've got to be kidding. But if you ask Job at the end of the story, in chapter 42, where he sees God face to face, even before he gets all his stuff back, Job would say, thank you, God, for letting me be in Job 2 rather than in Job 1. And Job, of course, is us. And we're in the middle of it. It happens. Uh, but through the virtue of hope, we can mentally be at the end of it, and we know where it's going to end. We, too, will look back and say, thank you, God, for all the dung. Well, I was billed as an apologist who 
it's an honorable vocation, like a lawyer, but it's very easy to, be, uh, to misuse it, as the three friends of Job did. They were bad apologists. Uh, not clear why they were bad. They were obviously bad psychologists. They were wrong about Job, but weren't they right about God? No. But they said, basically, God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. What was wrong with that? Well, nothing. But uh, they didn't know how wild God was. They didn't realize the lesson of the favorite sermon that I've ever heard in my entire life. One of the blessings God has given to me is ADD, which means I get bored very, very easily. So I don't like long sermons. When I was a teenager, I had, uh, I suppose, my most serious crisis of faith. I never could bring myself to doubt the existence of God, but uh, I doubted whether I could be happy in heaven because I thought heaven was going to be an eternal church service and I was always bored in church. Uh, these were kind of puritanical Protestant church services with very, very long sermons. Uh, so I didn't want to go to heaven, but I didn't want to go to the other place, and I certainly knew I couldn't stay here for a long time. Well, uh, since I have ADD, I love short sermons, and here's the shortest one I've ever heard, my favorite sermon of all time, preached by God himself, no surprise, to St. Catherine, a great medieval mystic, uh, and God is summarizing all of divine revelation in four words. He says there's only two things you need to know. Number one, I'm God. Number two, you're not. That's a summary of God's answer to Job. From our point of view, God is very wild. I suppose from God's point of view, it's we who are very wild. But there's a disconnect there. Inevitably. We keep having to be reminded of that second fact. I mean, Job's the best man in the world. God brags about how good he is, and yet God has to remind him, Job, I, when I was designing the world and the morning stars sang together and all the angels were doing my work, I didn't notice you advising me there. Where were you? Oops. Well, I can't do better than that. You've already studied this morning the world's best answer to the problem of evil, which is the book of Job. All I can do is add a few rather semi-helpful, semi-rational ideas, 15 of them, in fact. Why, isn't one good enough? Well, three of them come from natural reason, known by every sane human being. Three of them come from all the religions of the world. Three of them come from specifically biblical Judeo-Christian religion. Three of them come from Christianity alone. And finally, three of them are specifically Catholic. So even though my topic was only the Catholic answer to the problem of suffering, uh, I'll preface that with <clears throat> the universally human, the generically religious, uh, the biblical, and the Christian. Start with the universally human. Just about everybody knows that without the virtue of courage, you can't have any other virtue, because virtue is a struggle. We know why, the fall, not everybody knows that, but we all know that uh, without that particular virtue, there is no other virtue. So a hero is basically a hero of courage. When the great Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, the greatest novelist since Dostoevsky, <clears throat> came to Harvard, he had been lionized by the American press as a fighter for freedom and one who was a, virtually a martyr and had uh, suffered enormously for most of his life in the gulag, the Soviet concentration camps. Uh, he destroyed his reputation with the American secular press about 100% in, uh, in a single speech. Because one of the things he said, although he said it rather politely, was that uh, the most striking thing that he noticed about the United States of America, to which he was very grateful for giving him refuge and giving him this podium, uh, that he did not notice in the Soviet Union, wicked as it was, was the lack of courage. We're living in a bubble. Uh, 
he said basically, we're wicked, but we're interesting. You're not so wicked, but you're not interesting either. That's why there are great Russian novels, but no great American novels. No heroes. A world without heroes. How awful. Maybe this accounts for our fascination with Norse mythology, because that's full of heroes and courage and suffering, and there even, even the gods are heroes. They lose in the end. Well, without suffering, you can't develop courage. And without courage, you can't develop any of the other virtues. And therefore, without suffering, you can't be virtuous. It has to be tested. Just about everybody knows that, deep down. All right, that's answer number one. A more specific answer comes from a more specific culture, the ancient Greeks, who gave us half of what we have in Western civilization, the Jews giving us the other half. And one of the insights of almost all the Greek philosophers and the Greek dramatists uh, is that although pleasure may be a good thing, wisdom is better and higher. And the exchange of pleasure for wisdom is a good exchange. The payment of pleasure for wisdom is, is, is a good payment. It makes sense. Aeschylus writes, hour by hour, day by day, pain drips upon the heart. And there comes thus to man wisdom from the awful grace of God. That's, of course, not just Greek. Uh, the Jews had it, too. One of the great rabbis of the 20th century, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, wrote, the man who has not suffered, what could he possibly know anyway? Not much. Spoiled brats, they're not wise, they don't suffer. Brave New World, the argument for it is, everybody's happy now, nobody suffers. Well, they're barely human. By the way, one of the most tragic traumas of my teaching life was trying to teach Brave New World to uh, college freshmen uh, without preparing them for it. I figured they'd get at least the main point, and I found that most of my class thought that Huxley was for Brave New World. They thought it was a utopia instead of a, a dystopia. They were scandalized when I pointed out that he's, he's warning us against it. Well, you get what you want, I guess. All right, courage, wisdom. A third answer that's pretty universally human comes from Plato. And that has to do with the two different forms of evil that I distinguished at the beginning, namely the evil that you do and the evil that you suffer. Plato teaches that it is better to suffer evil than to do it. And even though you may not practice that in your own life, and you may not even believe that in your own life, you certainly do believe it in the lives of anyone that you love. Suppose you have a, a son who's off fighting the war against a tyrannical and evil regime, uh, and they capture him and torture him. And they give him the choice between being a torturer, cooperating in, let's say, the Gestapo's torture of innocent prisoners, or being a victim of torture. Both are horrible, tragic things that you, you pray that neither you nor anyone you love will ever be, be forced to do. But which would be the better choice? Which would you hope he would have the heroism and the courage to choose? To be tortured rather than to be a torturer. Plato gives you the big picture, the perspective. Compared with sin, suffering is trivial. Uh, St. Teresa uh, knew that when knocked off her horse and thrown into the mud, uh, she uh, said to God, why? And God said, I do this to all my friends. She replied, well, then it is no surprise how few friends you have. It's the same St. Teresa who lived a life full of suffering, who said that uh, from the viewpoint of heaven, the most horrible life of suffering on earth will be about as serious as one night in an inconvenient hotel. That's the big picture. If that's not true, heaven is not heaven. But that's going beyond the Greek perspective, although there are suggestions that Plato got close to it. 
None of that is necessarily religious. Let's go to a second stage. What's common to all the religions of the world? I teach a course in world religions, and uh, I begin by trying to define the term religion, uh, or trying to have the students do it, and they are surprised at how difficult it is. Because there's something solid and substantial at the heart of every religion in the world, but it's extremely difficult to define. And it doesn't seem to be something thin, but it is something vague, difficult to define. And maybe the best answer to that is the answer of AA. There's some higher power. You're not the greatest thing in reality. You are subject to something greater than yourself. Maybe it's not even a person. Maybe it's the impersonal nature of Brahman, or maybe it's just the Buddha mind, or the Tao, or the something. Maybe it's an it, maybe it's a who, but it's higher than you are. And that higher power has a purpose, has a mind, has a, a plan, and somehow, in a way that you can't understand because you are not that higher power, suffering, even apparently pointless and wasted and unjust suffering, fits perfectly into that plan that the tapestry that we see only the loose threads on the backside of is from the front side where God is weaving it, a perfect masterpiece. An intuition of something like that exists in every world religion. And the second thing that every world religion teaches is that we must be humble. We must be receptive. We must confess that we're stupid, that we're not that higher power. We have to listen to St. Catherine's sermon. And the most famous person who uh, learned that lesson, and therefore is the archetype and granddaddy of all good philosophers, was Socrates, who believed in effect that there are only two kinds of people in the world, uh, fools who think they're wise, and the wise who know that they're fools. Which is very similar to what Jesus said on a moral level, there's only two kinds of people in the world, Saints who know that they're sinners, and sinners who think that they're saints. Augustine was once asked to name the four cardinal virtues. He replied, humility, 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 and humility. Okay, so humility is necessary for all religions. And a third point here is not merely that the virtue of humility has to be admired and imitated and practiced, but that this higher power humbles us by suffering. That pushing us down is the only way to get us up. Because all the religions of the world, in very different and significantly different ways, teach an amazing truth, apparently, apparently a scandalous and self-contradictory truth, that the ego has to get out of its own way that we have to get off the throne of our own life, that unless we die, we can't live. Unless we say no, we can't say yes. Unless the self dies, it can't live. We all love to say to God, you're sitting in my seat, get off. That's essentially the point of the most famous sentence, I think, the most philosophically important sentence ever written by the United States Supreme Court, which is either the profoundly wisest or profoundly foolish, foolish, foolishest, is that a word? Sentence ever written. It was written by Judas Anthony Kennedy, I'm sorry, Justice Anthony Kennedy, in the famous mystery passage in um, the 1992 uh, Casey decision, uh, ratifying Planned Parenthood's uh, right to murder our own children. It was that at the heart of liberty is the right to determine for ourselves the meaning of life and the mystery of existence. In other words, God, get out of my seat. Well, I honestly think that uh, the song we all sing, If We Enter Hell, is going to be, I did it my way. Everybody wants pleasure, nobody wants pain, therefore suffering ensures that we don't always get our own way. And that may be a crude and very preliminary uh, lesson, but it's a lesson on that absolutely necessary road. All right, next we get to Job.
We're getting deeper and deeper. I'll summarize the lessons in Job in three words. Trust and obey and kvetch. First, trust. Uh, that's all Job has. He doesn't understand. Uh, faith to Job is not specifiable by a creed. The object of faith, says Thomas Aquinas, is first of all, God himself as a person, and only secondly, true propositions about God. Job would have no problem with that. He trusts God. He trusts that God loves him. Of course, if there's any God at all, he must be omnipotent. A weak God is a contradiction in terms. And if there's any God at all, he must be all wise, omniscient. A stupid God is a contradiction in terms. But does God love us? Is that certain? Is that obvious? No. Perhaps the best question any student ever asked me in my life was the first time I taught the Brothers Karamazov, which I think is the world's greatest novel. I classify The Lord of the Rings as something more than a novel. Uh, she was impressed, and she never asked any question until the course was over. She came to me and said, Professor, I got a question for you. Please don't be uh, insulted. It's a very private question. Do you believe all this stuff? I said, what do you mean all this stuff? Well, Dostoevsky. I said, you mean Christianity? She said, yeah. I said, yeah, I do. Do you? And she said, well, I don't know. I got, I got a problem. I said, what's your problem? She said, well, what impressed me about Dostoevsky is that through all the shit, she used the word shit. Girls don't usually use that word. It's a good word, by the way. It's in the Bible. It's not only in Job, it's in Philippians. Read it. One of my favorite passages, uh, Paul is contrasting all his worldly perks. Pharisee of the Pharisees, as to the law, blameless, studied under Gamaliel, world's greatest rabbi. All of this, compared with knowing Christ, is skubala. It's the Greek word. It's the four-letter word. It's a good word. God invented it. Anyway, all this stuff is because God loves us? I said, yeah, I do believe that. And she says, why? I said, that's a good question. Why do I believe it? All right, um, I'll write a book explaining that someday. It's called Apologetics. She said, no, that's not what I mean. I've read those books. I don't know whether I believe it or not, but why would God, believe, why would God fall in love with us? What is there in us that he's so in love with? I said, that's an awfully good question. And then I said, Come back in a year, maybe I'll have the answer then. I meant it as a joke. She came back in a year. That very class, that very place, that very time. Remember me? Yeah, you were in my class last year. Yeah, remember my question I asked you about Dostoevsky? Yeah, I do, I'm haunted by it. Well, you said you'd have an answer a year from now. No, I didn't. I said, come back and ask it again. I'll give you the same answer. See you in heaven. Why would God love us? It's like a kid who sets up an ant farm and finds that the ants are rebels. Why would he become an ant and let the ants kill him in order to save an ant because he loves ants so much? It's crazy. God's nuts. Thank God. Well, it's not obvious that God loves us. That's a matter of trust. That's a choice. And Job just has to put his money in the God bank in order for it to get interest. It's the universal trust company. Notice that the strongest argument for atheism, which I gave you at the beginning, namely those three non-negotiable attributes of God, all power, all wisdom, and all goodness. Well, if goodness means love, then that strongest answer for atheism is also the answer to the problem of suffering. Well, wait a minute, what do you mean? Romans 8.28, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, the most shatteringly life-changing verse I've ever heard. Very hard to believe. All things work together for good to those who love God, 
or God makes all things work together for good, or God works all things together for good. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, all-benevolent and all-wise, that conclusion, Romans 8:28, follows with absolutely infallible logical necessity. Now, Job didn't use that syllogism. It was just pure trust, but he got there instantly. Job is like a woman, not a man. My wife is constantly amazing me by how philosophical she is. I'll ask a question, and I'm going to set up a second question, and she'll answer the second question before I answer the first one. The, the, the steps don't, don't matter. I'm, I'm a worm crawling step by step along the ground. She's a, an eagle flying through the air and gets there before I do. Well, that's what Job is. He's like an eagle. Yeah, you got to trust him. That's it. But not just trust, but obey. The Eastern Orthodox have a wonderful saying, orthopraxy leads to orthodoxy. Right living leads to right belief. Right conduct leads to right wisdom. How, how do you get wise, be a saint? Most of the theologians in the world uh, in the 20th century could write more brilliant and scholarly sentences than Mother Teresa, who rarely used words of more than one syllable. I don't know a single wiser person in the 20th century than Mother Teresa. What made her wise? She was a saint. Jesus solves the problem of hermeneutics, how to figure out how to interpret divine revelation how to discern God's mind and will, with scandalous simplicity in John 7, verse 17. The Pharisees ask him two questions. How can we understand your teaching, which you claim comes from God, whom you call your father? So they're really asking, how can we understand it, and how do we know it's really the word of God? And Jesus says, if your will were to do the will of my father, you would understand my teaching and that it is from him. If the will's online, everything's online. The will is the captain of the soul. And if he's a good captain, he'll have a good navigator and he'll use the navigator right. That's not Greek wisdom. Greek wisdom usually puts the navigator first. The will ought to follow reason. Well, that's true, but reason ought to also to follow the will. And the will often messes up reason. This is what Plato did not realize. He thought all evil came from ignorance. Well, he forgot that all ignorance comes from evil. We don't want that to be true. Therefore, we believe it isn't true. We have that power, alas. So if our will is online, eventually our mind will be too. How do you understand God? Love him. How do you understand another human being? Well, there's two ways. You can be a great psychologist and figure him out by reason and know that person as a, a case study in oh, schizophrenia or manic depression or whatever they are, or you can become their friend. Now, who knows you better, your best friend or your best psychologist? Okay, trust, obey, the third word, kvetch, complain, argue. God doesn't mind that. The family that argues together stays together. Uh, the three friends are polite, they don't argue with God. They defend God. They just quote the rest of the Bible, and there's nothing wrong with their theology. There's a lot wrong with Job's theology. He confesses at one point, uh, my suffering is greater than I can bear. What wonder then that my words are wild? He knows his words are wild. He's throwing dishes at God. God says, thanks, Job. You've given me a compliment. You take me seriously. You're praying. You're talking to me. They're only talking about me, as if I were absent. I am highly insulted. Hey, troops, I'm here. Hello. If you've got arguments against God, tell him. If you've got feelings that you think are impious, tell God. If you're mad at God, tell him. The Psalms do that. The Psalms are very crude. We should be too. You can be both crude and sophisticated. 
All bodies are crude, all clothes are sophisticated. We should be clothed most of the time, but underneath those sophisticated clothes, there's a crude and basically ugly but honest human body. Get naked before God. That's what Job did. The three friends never did. That's three practical answers to the problem of suffering. Trust, obey, and kvetch. Judaism also has three theoretical answers or theological answers to the problem of evil that no other religion has. One is the doctrine of the fall. There are myths of some sort of a fall, but it's almost always something cosmic, something that happened to other people or that happened without our fault. But in Genesis, the blame is put precisely on us. And when both of us, both Adam and Eve, try to pass the blame, when Adam said, the woman made me do it, and Eve says, the devil made me do it, God does not accept either excuse. And the consequence of the fall is that we are abnormal. There's no such thing as a normal person. Secularists think saints are abnormal and sinners are normal. They're exactly wrong. God created us to be saints, so sinners are abnormal. We're all, we're all abnormal. That's as radical a consequence for psychology as the following consequence would be for physics. Suppose the physicist discovered that uh, we are not living in the universe that appears at all. We are living in antimatter that looks like matter. That would change everything. Well, the fall changes everything about human nature. The most normal human being is abnormal. Our horizontal is really skewered, including our thought. A second typically Jewish principle, and this is unusual outside of Judaism, although you get it in common sense philosophers like Aristotle, is the psychosomatic unity. We're tempted to be either spiritualists denying matter or materialists denying spirit or dualists thinking of matter and spirit as two entities like Plato or Descartes. But for Judaism, God created man as man creates art. Music is not just sound and music is not just concepts or relationships or harmonies between sounds, it's both. Uh, a novel is not just words, and a novel is not just meaning, it's words and meaning. And you can't change the meaning without changing the words, and you can't change the words without changing the meaning. And whenever you change the words, you must change the meaning. And whenever you change the meaning, you must change the words. So the body and the soul are designed together, created together, live together, die together, and go to heaven together. We're tempted to somehow separate those two things and separate the two kinds of evil wrongly into spiritual and physical rather than what we're to blame for and what God imposes upon us as a remedy for our blame. Finally, another principle in the Jewish scriptures is something that you find a little bit of analogy to in Plato, namely a cosmic hierarchy such that well, Plato uses an image in one of his dialogues in another context of, uh, this is the dialogue, the ion, which explains uh, divine inspiration as the origin of human art. He says, imagine a magnet and imagine a chain of three iron rings stuck onto that magnet. Uh, the magnet is the gods and the first iron ring is the creative poet like Homer. Uh, and the second iron ring is the reciter of Homer, which is Ion. He's a, a singer, a reciter. Uh, and the third iron ring is his audience. The magnetism flows into the audience from the reciter through Homer from the gods. All right, that's an interesting theory of divine inspiration. There's a half-truth to it, at least. But let's apply that to the relation between God, the human soul, the human body, and the material universe. God created us as innocent. That is, our soul was totally plugged into God. That first magnet was totally magnetized by and always in the presence of the magnet. 
And therefore, why wouldn't its body be totally one with its soul and be just as immortal as its soul? So God created Adam and Eve to have immortal bodies. No death. Death came only after sin. And what about suffering? Well, suffering is the disunity between the body and the universe. Just as death is the disunity between the soul and the body, and sin is the disunity between God and the soul. The three go together. Now, neither the universe nor the body has free will, but the soul does. So the soul alone can pull the plug. God won't pull the plug. Neither will the universe, neither will the body, but your soul can. And when the soul pulls the plug to God, when the first iron ring separates itself from the magnet, what happens is the whole chain falls apart. This is why physical death is not simply a punishment for spiritual sin, but a necessary consequence. And so is pain and suffering. Now we go to specifically Christian answers. And the one specifically Christian doctrine that no religion believes except Christianity, and every Christian in the world believes, if he doesn't believe this, he's not a Christian, is that Jesus is Lord. That three-word formula is probably the first and earliest of the Christian creeds, mentioned twice in Paul's letters. And the word used for Lord there, kurios, is a word that none of the early Christians ever used for anyone else but God. Caesar was not kurios. This is why, though Rome was very tolerant of all and any religion, it was intolerant of only two, Judaism and Christianity, because they would not call Caesar Lord. That was a political statement. Religion can't help being politically offensive. All right, Christ is Lord. Christ is God incarnate. And what does he do about the problem of evil that nobody else does? Well, first he shows God's answer, which starts with God's love. He shows God's love more totally than anybody else does. Secondly, he speaks of it. And thirdly, he enacts it. Let's look at those three things. Where does he show God's love? Well, in a sense everywhere, but especially when his best friend dies, Lazarus. What does he do? One of the most impressive verses in the Bible is the shortest one. It's only two words long. Jesus wept. That's God's answer to human suffering. Christ is God's tears. And what does he do before he raises Lazarus to poor Martha, Lazarus' sister? before he gives her the miracle, and even before he gives her her test of faith, do you believe this? Do you believe me? He gives her his presence. This may be difficult as a thought experiment for native Californians, but imagine you're living in Massachusetts and there's a blizzard, and you're stuck, and the battery fails, and it's three o'clock in the morning, uh, and there you are, and you've got a cell phone, and you call AAA, and AAA says, well, we can come with a new battery, but it'll take two hours to get there. Well, it's the best you can do. So you're stuck in this car, and you're cold, and you're freezing, and you're lonely. And then you think, hey, my brother-in-law lives in this neighborhood. Why dare to call him up? Yeah, I'll call him up. Hey, bro, yeah, what's the matter? Well, I'm stuck in this car. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I don't have jumper cables or a battery, but I'll come and sit with you. You will? Yeah. All right, so he sits with you and keeps your mind and body warm for two hours, and then AAA comes and gives you a new battery, and you're, you're free. Who are you more grateful to, AAA or your brother-in-law? Well, God's more like your brother-in-law than like AAA. Presence. That's what we need. When somebody that you love is dying, almost always you're thinking and usually saying, what can I do for you? And there's one very obvious answer, especially if you're already in his presence. Exactly what you're doing right now. Stay with me. Be here. Be present. Jesus does that. He comes into our suffering. All of it. Even the worst physical suffering ever devised. Crucifixion. And even into the worst spiritual suffering imaginable 
which in its pure form exists only in hell, namely, to be forsaken of God. Now, the Son was never really forsaken by the Father, but he certainly felt that way. That's impressive. He loves us that much. Wow. He also speaks of it, especially in the Beatitudes. Uh, and he speaks of it in ways that are shocking and that turn everything else on their head. And all the Beatitudes uh, are talking about hope, about rewards, about the promise, about suffering being like childbirth. Childbirth is one of the most obviously severe physical sufferings in a normal human life. An old 50s comedian, Carol Burnett, once said, if a man wants to understand what it is to give birth to a baby, let him take his lower lip and stretch it over his head. And yet, after the baby is born, all the pain is forgotten. And finally, the deed. Christ not only shows God's love and speaks more profoundly about God's love than anyone, but, but does it. My favorite line in cinema, my, my candidate for the greatest and profoundest line in the entire history of cinema is from, I think, the greatest movie ever made. And you probably can guess what the movie is and therefore what the line is. The movie is The Passion of the Christ. And the line comes from Christ's own lips when on the Via Dolorosa, he is almost dead and he's struggling and he's bleeding and he's caressing his cross like a teddy bear. And his mother is agonizing with him and she doesn't understand. And she's as close to him as she can be. And she says, why, I don't understand, why do you have to do this? And he turns to her and he says, see mother, I make all things new. Wow. All things, including suffering. He did not come to take away our suffering. He came to change it, to make it redemptive, to make it the opposite of what it seems to be, not a defeat, but a victory. How that works, nobody knows. Theories about how that works abound, just as theories of the atonement abound. They all cast a little bit of light on it, but immense mystery remains and probably always will. So far, so good. Good evangelical Protestants would agree with everything I've said so far. They, by the way, love the movie The Passion of the Christ, even though it's deeply Catholic and deeply Marian. But what's a specifically Catholic addition to the wisdom, if it is wisdom, that I've tried to give you so far about why God allows us to suffer? The three answers to that question that I'm going to give you can all be found in a word that doesn't exist in English, but it exists in Russian. It's untranslatable. Zobornost. It's something like the Polish solidarinosk, or solidarity, but it's not external or political, uh, but it's mystical. Sometimes it's translated universality or Catholicity, uh, it means that we are incorporated into the incarnation so that everything that happens to one somehow has consequences in the other. That there is a kind of spiritual gravity parallel to physical gravity, that the spiritual world is as subtly and beautifully united as the physical world. If, if I were to drop this podium, uh, you would hear it, and the uh, floor would shake a little bit, and if it was heavy enough, maybe uh, even the sidewalk outside would shake a little bit. But because of gravity, and because every particle of matter in the universe exercises a real causal effect on every other particle of matter in the universe, which is precisely measurable 
It's the, uh, uh, the inverse of the distance and the uh, product of the mass, I think, uh, between the particles. Therefore, uh, you have what is often called the butterfly effect. Uh, you drop uh, a pebble into a pool and the ripples keep going and keep going and keep going until they reach the shore. And at one point they become invisible, but they're still there. They make a difference. Everything makes a difference to everything. Now, if that's the way the physical universe works, why should the spiritual universe be somehow simpler and more obvious and clear rather than more mysterious and complex? Why shouldn't every act of virtue that you ever commit in your life somehow or other, at least indirectly and in a tiny way, improve the life and the soul of every other human being? Maybe even throughout time, certainly into the future, maybe even into the past. There's a saying that's common in Russian Orthodox spirituality. If you go home and do one deed of charity to your neighbor this afternoon, the result will be that hundreds of years from now, some man who is uh, undergoing tremendous tortures and temptations uh, and is poised on the brink of rebellion uh, will be given just enough grace to endure. And if you don't, he won't. That's the Warnost. If you're ever on the campus of Princeton University in New Jersey, uh, go to the library. And if they haven't taken it away yet, you will see uh, one of my favorite sculptures. It looks like a brass watermelon with a thousand pins stuck into it. It's in the foyer of the library. Uh, I was there when some friends were doing research and I had nothing to do. So I was just looking at this thing, and I said, that's strange. And I walked past it, and it seemed to be whispering to me. And I stopped, and it stopped. So I tested something. Maybe it's the air currents. So I went, and it went back. And then I touched it, boing, and it went boing, 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 boing. All the pins were connected. It was like an acoustical uh, marvel. So I stood there playing that instrument for about an hour. And if it ever gets stolen, look for my cellar. Because that's an image of the spiritual universe. Every one of us is one of those pins, and every one of us is connected, however remotely, to every other pin. Everything we do has some effect, makes some sort of difference in the life of somebody else. Therefore, there are no victimless crimes. If you're tempted to a sin that you think is going to harm your soul, but you don't care about your own soul, but there's somebody that you love, remember that your sin is inevitably going to harm that person that you love, even if you're not interacting with them anymore. Uh, in the human body, when there's a wound or an infection or even just a pain, like a, a, a pebble in the toe, Everything in the body is affected. You can't even think clearly when you have a pebble in your toe. And maybe the human race is at least as integrated as a human body. All right, three forms of this sobornost, which I think is ultimately an incorporation into the incarnation, is that when we are put into Christ by faith and baptism, we are therefore put into his sufferings and to some extent or other participate in his sufferings. And we can vastly increase that extent by accepting it in faith and love. We can move towards the cross, not because it's a cross, but because it's his. Fulton Sheen used to say in the middle of the Cold War, Communism is the cross without Christ, and America is Christ without the cross. Neither will win the world. Today, it would be radical Islam. That is also a cross without Christ. And insofar as we are Christ without a cross, we're not going to win. But Christ on the cross infallibly wins. Death becomes resurrection. Suffering becomes joy. Pregnancy becomes childbirth. So we are incorporated into Christ. Christ is not the CEO of the corporation. He's the head of the body. 
and head means literal, biological head. That funny-looking ball perched between your shoulders. Not a boss who sits in the office and orders people around. That's also the relation between the Christian husband and the Christian wife, according to Ephesians 5. So we're incorporated into Christ and into his church, which is his body. Every other philosopher and savior and mystic like Buddha or Socrates says, this is my mind. That's how he tries to save the world. Jesus says, this is my body. That's how he does save the world. It's the communion of saints, the, the organic unity, the spiritual gravity. Nothing's wasted. And that whole thing focuses most intensely and most powerfully in the Eucharist, where your very body receives the body of Christ thereby becoming the body of Christ. We don't understand it any more than we understand Job. It's crazy, it's wild. Uh, we could never have invented it. If we succeeded in kicking God off the throne and redesigning ourselves and our universe, it would be a shabby little stupid universe. It couldn't possibly, we, we couldn't even have invented strawberries. But even though we don't understand it, we can become it. Because you are what you eat. Man ist, was er ist. And as Augustine says, when you receive the body of Christ, you become the body of Christ. And within the body of Christ, on the cross, in the church, and in the Eucharist, same body in three conditions, when you become the body of Christ, everything changes. The sufferings of that body are not just sufferings, they're the sufferings of that body. And to define and limit how that changes can't be done. See, Mother, I make all things new. 